This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast here on the AHP Digital Radio Network, the only dedicated hunting, shooting and fishing radio show here in Australia. If you'd like to find out more about AHP, visit australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. If you would like to email us, then you can go to the website and click on the contact icon. Or alternatively, you can email me directly at australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to listen to the Australian Hunting Podcast, you can visit the website and click on the archived podcast link. You can also subscribe to the Australian Hunting Podcast on iTunes for automatic updates. Make sure you leave a comment and rate us five stars on iTunes. That would be much appreciated. On Facebook, you can find us under Australian Hunting Podcast, where listeners are sharing ideas, thoughts and opinions, as well as photos and videos twitter.com forward slash ah podcast if you'd like to follow our twitter feed you can also check out my videos on youtube under the name aussie federal control alternatively all social media links can be found on the website everyone knows i love my listeners but i've got especially some extra special love for my donating listeners if you'd like to donate or do a monthly subscription to the show go to the website and click on the donate button on the right hand side of the main page and show your support which is always appreciated that helps us keeps the lights on in this joint and pay those bills we have over 65 hours of free podcasting audio content to date for you all to enjoy Share the Australian Hunting Podcast with your friends and family and get as many people as you know into hunting, shooting and fishing as possible so they can enjoy this fantastic lifestyle that we all love. So as usual, without further ado, let's get into my interview with today's guest. This is Rod Drew, CEO of Field and Game Australia. This is Rob Fickling from Beyond the Divide and Maroka 30. Hi, this is Col Allison, hunter, journalist for 42 years and a shooter. Hi, this is Russell Mark, Olympic gold medalist. This is Charlie Jacoby from Field Sports Britain. Hey everybody, it's Tom Knapp and you're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Pleasure to have you guys back with us again. And today, actually in the house, uh, haven't done this before, uh, except with Mario, my other co-host for the Straight Shooting Podcast. I've got Pete Johnson with me uh, at my house to have a chat with me today. How are you doing, Pete? I'm good, thanks, Jason, and uh, thanks very much for the opportunity. And uh, hello to all your listeners out there. Perfect. Pete's going to uh, address some questions today on his run up to the 2015 election. So I guess, Pete, first off, people may not know, they might vote SFP, but they might not know who you are. So I guess tell us a bit about yourself, how you got into hunting and shooting and fishing, uh, just in general. Well, Jason, uh, I, was, I was blessed to uh, come from a family whose uh, both sides came off the land. Uh, so hunting was a tool to control uh, vermin and also a way of supplementing food on the table. And fishing fell along those lines too. I had a father who was a really, really keen fisherman and got me out there to enjoy what life's got, you know, the outdoors life. You can't beat it. Yeah. Do you love, what do you sort of love? I mean, I know your first uh, passion, you love a bit of fishing, but do you like all, you like hunting, fishing, the whole lot? What do you enjoy? Oh, I'm a very avid hunter. 
very yeah. much so. I love I love my <laughs> wild meat, and uh, you and I have had discussions before. I really like my duck hunting, yeah, uh, because it's <laughs> such a tasty outcome. Yeah, but um, I've really picked up the bug for deer hunting of late, and with with that, like I've always been, you know, good at knocking off foxes. I love whistling up foxes with a shotgun. That was our job as kids. Yeah, and uh, potting rabbits for the for the table. So we were taught at a young age, head shooting was the way to go with rabbits. And then we whistled up the foxes. And um, then when we went fishing, it was another way of supplementing food on the table. Yeah. What about, say, family? Um, did they hunt? Did they have a problem with hunting? Are they just, just part, of the, part of growing up? Or? No. Well, both parents coming from a rural background and their, their, their families from a rural background, it was just an accepted means. Um, mum was very handy with a shotgun, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, Dad was very, very good. Like Dad used to um, do a bit of trick shooting with a twenty-two single shot. He used to be able to knock a peach pith out of the air in the orchard. Yeah, yeah. my uncle still tells me those stories, <laughs> and uh, Dad's always downplayed it. Have you got any sort of other brothers or sisters? Did they hunt too? Was it part of the part of the family for everyone? Or I'm the youngest of seven, and I think every one of us is been introduced to a fishing rod and a, and a rifle or a shotgun at some stage. Uh, my eldest brother, uh, he still hunts occasionally. Uh, my middle brother, he's making knives up at Galaganbone and he goes pig hunting. Um, my sisters, they don't hunt anymore. I think my sister lives in Canada hunts actually, yeah, she's still hunting over there with her uh, family over there. Um, but it's we've always done it together. When we were younger, we all went out as a family unit to hunt and fish what was the uh you know the favorite recipe what was on the table what you know if it was duck was it uh rabbits what was it oh look my mum baked rabbit really well yeah um and casseroled <laughs> it really well i picked up a lot of my, my cooking skills off mum um i'd say look when the mullet were running we used to go out and catch the big sea run mullet uh baked mullet was really really good mum would stuff it do it in an oven bag and bake it, oh, it was nice. really really nice but um the old leg of goat comes up all right too. Yeah, in a curry, were they curry eaters? Curry or roast? Yeah, yeah, I've probably experimented more than everybody else with the curry side of things. Yeah. Um, back in the days, it was meat and three veg or a casserole. Yeah. So I know I was asking you before, we just talked a bit about it a little bit. What's your favourite species? I guess let's talk about hunting first, your favourite species to hunt, and then let's, let's talk about the fishing side, favourite fish to catch. I think if it was me... To put everything on above, I love whistling foxes. I think that's a bit of a, a skillful art, be able to pick the right stand, where to, where to put yourself so you don't silhouette yourself uh, to the fox, be able to get a good carry of your whistle and not have the wind give you up because that's the biggest problem, scent. Then vision. Okay, So if you get a fox in and you keep coming, to, to get them in at sometimes seven or eight metres, it's exhilarating. Uh, if I want to eat things, I don't think you can go past shooting ducks. Yeah, I know. As you probably know about this because uh, if people don't know, Pete sort of doesn't live too far from me. But I was over here at the um, uh, Prospect Reservoir and I was doing the bike track through the uh, through the bike track there, through Prospect Reservoir, it goes right up to Fairfield sort of area. And I, one day I was driving through, I thought, there's a lot of mulberries around here. I might bring a whistle one day, like obviously no firearm, just sit on one of these hills and uh, opposite the bike track and see if I could call in. The best stand I've ever had, I actually called in a uh, fox with an electronic caller, and then when he was waiting there, I turned the uh, caller off. And uh, he wouldn't come in further than about 20 metres. I was on one side of the bike track, I was sitting on a little hill. 
he was about 20 metres from me and then I had to turn the caller off because he wouldn't come in. Then I actually lip-squeaked him yep. into about literally about a metre. It's the best. Uh, yeah. <laughs> pity there was no firearm. He came, yeah. <laughs> that gets him in. Yeah, yeah. I'm, like, I'm like, I'm like, you know what I mean? And then all of a sudden, he, oh, he literally, bur- I couldn't believe it. He burst out of the bushes. And then uh, came, and then eventually came out, sat there for a couple of minutes, then tried to come and win me. Went through the fence, st- stood on the bike track, looked up towards the main road, which was probably about 100 metres away. Came, then started running up the hill at me. Got to about a metre, uh, centred me. He was gone. So one of the best sort of calling experiences I've had. We've got a lot in common with that. I love the fox uh, whistling. I love duck shooting as well. Two of my top favourites. So there's there's a lot more than just foxes in that paddock too. I can tell you. <laughs> is there why? What's in, what else is in there? Well, there was a, a feral goat problem because all around those areas um, at uh, Horsley Park yep. and, and down through Ferris Road, uh, what we used to call Chookshit Hill, yeah. okay, <laughs> all around those areas, um, people had their own goats and their own deer. Yeah. Now, my wife works just around the corner from there, across the road at Austral Bricks, and she was driving along the internal road at Austral Bricks one afternoon and she nearly had a deer collide with her. Really? Had, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, she had a little... Uh, a little fellow. Yeah, not bad, not bad. I love it down there. But um, I know you do a bit of hosting, you do a bit of radio as well, uh, the High Tide Fishing Show. How did you get in, sort of involved with that and what was the? how did that sort of come about and why did you get involved with that? Because we know it's an early start. Well, Jason, I got involved with the High Tide program back in the days when it was at 2KY, some 23 years ago. Um, the producer of the show, Kieran Reiki, was looking for someone as a backstop for his main presenter, which was Bruce Shoemaker in those days. Bruce was the president of the New South Wales Fishing Clubs Association and then I uh, took over the presidency from Bruce when he no longer wanted to carry on. So I took over from that and then Kieran, you saw that as a natural progression, so using someone from the same organisation that had uh, quite a large following in those days and I started doing the uh, the fill-ins and I'd come in once a month to do a regular uh, studio session and i'd also give on water reports if i wasn't in the studio i was out fishing so i was giving reports from up and down the coast and that's how i got involved with it and then i uh i got out of you know doing that regularly probably once a month it went to and then um the last two years i've been back there they jokingly call me the permanent casual now so i'm there three weekends out of four and look it's it's a wonderful gig it's a, a good opportunity to get out there and hear what's happening out there and experience what's happening in the fishing world and also have some positive influence over some people that don't really know what's happening. Do you still enjoy doing it? How long do you think you're going to be doing it for? Just... Oh, it's been a wonderful vehicle for my profile, but we get a lot of comments every week about, oh, that was an informative show. Like there's people that uh, ring up from um, Fisheries Research, Matt Barwick, and he's just a brain's trust full of knowledge on different matters of fish reproduction and fish habitat. And I'll never stop enjoying learning. And, you know, as long as Kieran will have me, I'll keep providing uh, input into the show. Judas and fishes, did you get involved with it? Uh, way back, oh, well, put it this way, the current New South Wales government was in opposition. And along with three other members of my beloved Warringah Anglers Fishing Club over on the Northern Beaches, we decided enough was enough. We got sick and tired of marine parks being whacked up without any solid science to support them. Uh, we got nearly 17,000 signatures uh, across New South Wales uh, through this petition. With the petition, we um, 
sought the support of the Shadow Minister for Fisheries at the time, and that was Duncan Gay. Uh, we got these uh, 17, nearly 17,000 signatures and uh, we did a nice presentation and photo shoot on the steps of Parliament House in Macquarie Street with Duncan Gay and Andrew Stoner, uh, Ian Mackay and myself, and we handed the petition over to them. Um, fast track it, they got into power. Duncan didn't get the fisheries portfolio. He became Roads and Maritime Minister. And nothing was done about the moratorium. They used this as an election issue. Nothing was done. Uh, Robert Brown said, listen, guys, we know you've been dudded. Let's uh, let's do something. So he posted uh, in uh, Parliament the motion to put a moratorium on marine parks. And I thought, well, this is damn good for fishermen in New South Wales. So they had my support. Um, we or, As fishermen, we were always a wee bit wary of whether or not we had a fit with the Shooters Party, but they changed the name to Shooters and Fishers. They instigated um, a couple of fishermen into the party to start the fishing branch, and I've got, uh, you know, I got a long in time to realise that when you've got a voice in Parliament, you have to use it, and I've never looked back ever since. I think the Shooters and Fishers Party are the answer for fishermen and shooters in New South Wales. Excellent. I mean, how did you get nominated, I guess, and selected? After all that, how did you get then get selected to run up to the uh, this uh, 2015 state election here in New South Wales? And uh, how did it come about? Yeah. Uh, that's um, fairly complex, I guess. I'll, I'll try and simplify it. <laughs> Every party has a selection process, or most parties have a selection process of pre-selection. Uh, for the last few years, I've been the chairman of the fishing branch, and I was nominated as deputy chair of the party. Through the exposure that I've gotten over the radio, like high tide, and also being involved in hunting, and, and a lot of people don't know, I'm current president of Napoon Hunters Club. Uh, it, it came up that I had a tilt back in 2011 in the local seat of Toongabby, which was Nathan Reese's seat. Yeah. How, how, <laughs> that, how that came about was Nathan Reese. those people will remember, broke a handshake agreement with Robert Brown on hunting in national parks. Yep. But he also also broke down the deal that there'd be no more marine parks. So I was livid. Uh, the Shooters and Fishers Party said, well, hey, Pete, you live in his electorate. Would you run? Absolutely was the answer. I'm looking forward to it. Um, after that and the profile we got out of that for the party, you've got to remember it's the first time we've ever run a lower house seat and we grabbed 5% of the vote. We polled third highest in the electorate of Toongabby and it took seven days to decide the seat and Nathan Reese got in by 192 votes and that was preferences from the Greens candidate that got him across the line. So, yes, we had a major impact in that. And then with all the work that I've done within the party and trying to fight for the rights of fishermen over the last 20-odd years uh, and I won pre-selection for the number two spot at the state conference last year. So, Pete, tell me, uh, why should people vote for the SFP? And in particular, why should they vote for you, Pete Johnson? Why wouldn't you vote for me, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. T- tell us why Why should the uh, fishermen, hunters out there, you know, vote for the SFP, but also in particular yourself? Well, Shooters and Fishers Party are the only party that truly represents shooters and fishers. Okay? There's other parties out there that are not got a seat at the table. I mean, 
The other minor parties that are out there that say they represent fishers, they, they're not elected. They have to rely on doing deals to get what they want. And they haven't got anything as such. So we've got two seats in, in power, and hopefully I'll be the third seat in power. You start to see that we'll have some real leverage against the government. I mean, the knowledge that I've, I've learnt through my background as commercial fisherman as a, and a very keen and avid recreational fisherman, very passionate about fishing, I've represented the fishing community at these government review panels. I've sat on saltwater review committees. I've sat on intertidal protected areas where you can go and harvest your bait. I've seen firsthand how anglers in New South Wales get done over, and I mean get done over. There's self-interest people out there that get on the boards of these review committees that get paid a sitting fee okay, to get their own point of view across. They don't take into account the whole fishing community. All right? That is why I, years ago when I saw this firsthand, I said I have to do something about it. I'm a strong believer if you believe in your convictions, you have to fight for them. And if it means winning a fight for a common goal so everybody's got a right to access their common law right to fish for a feed, I'll be there fighting. The Sporting Shooters Association of Australia proudly presents Australia's largest event for the sports shooting industry right here in Sydney, the Shot Expo, June the 21st and 22nd. For the true enthusiast, the Shot Expo showcases the professionalism and commitment to safety of sports shooting in Australia. Safety and training demos, ethical hunting and conservation, outdoor and camping archery, it's all on show. The Shot Expo, Rose Hill Racecourse, June the 21st and 22nd. Pay on the day or go to shotexpo.com.au for sponsors, exhibitors and online bookings what about currently we've got uh you know katrina hodgkinson how do you think i mean she's obviously the uh, minister for primary industries how has she been going you think does she just rely on uh yeah yeah but i mean how is she how do you think she's going in the portfolio has it been good for shooters or uh, sorry good for fishers i should say uh good or well that he actually actually deals with uh, hunting as well so uh, we know it hasn't been good for hunting but has it been good for fishing or or bad well, you just answered your own question there. It was bad for hunting, and we're going from train wreck to train wreck in fisheries. I mean, back quite a few years ago, the best fisheries minister we ever had was a fellow by the name of Bob Martin, who was a research scientist at fisheries and developed into a po- politician and was the best fisheries manager we ever had. I think we're pretty close to scraping the bottom of the barrel with this current minister of fisheries. Yeah. Oh, well, we've seen uh, with the changeover of the uh, O'Farrell and Baird government that uh, what Robin Parker lost her position, didn't she, as uh, Environment Minister? So I'm surprised that maybe Hodgie or Bodgie Hodgie was able to uh, hold on to her position because we've seen quite a number of changes in the Cabinet, have we? Quite a lot of change. Yes, and to be honest, we've interviewed Duncan Gay on radio on the High Tide program, and we've also uh, interviewed the Minister, Katrina Hodgkinson, on the radio program. And I'll give credit where credit's due. They've done some great work. But at the moment, I really think this minister has a problem of just taking the work from her advisers as gospel and, and putting it out there. I think she's too far detached from some of the issues in her portfolio. Mm. Good stuff, mate. You've been, sorry, uh, you'll be tackling and concentrating on the fishing side of things with SFP. Uh, why is that? Oh, I'd say it's because of my uh, history that I've been out there fighting for anglers' rights on some of these review committees and given the fact that I'm pretty well conversant with uh, current affairs in fishing at the moment, I'm working pretty hard on the commercial reforms, which I think are a draconian uh, reform and it's going to really damage 
the New South Wales wild harvest fishery and it's going to affect consumers. And also the fact that I've got my head around the hunting uh, sphere. Yeah. Yeah, we can call it an industry because I know guides. I, I know people out there. I'm president of the hunting club, and I'm also uh, I'm also on the Federation of Hunting Clubs committee. Yeah, um, you were just talking about Duncan Gunner. This is in New South Wales, but I mean, do you think the politicians are, are you know do you think they're playing with the fishers a bit? We know the Avent government had a campaign uh, before the last federal election uh, to try and win that fishing vote. What you know, I mean, I don't trust liberals at all. Anyway, you probably know that. A lot of people know that about me. Can we trust them? No. They are playing politics with anglers. I mean, the super trawler issue, that got dead and buried because a lot of people got out there and protested. And once again, they used it as an electoral issue. But I wouldn't be surprised if you see uh, the uh, issue of the super trawler stick its head up again. In fact, this current commercial fisheries reform that has been raised by the bad government, although I would say it's been in the making while O'Farrell was Premier, did you know that they have decided in this reform to lift the restriction of foreign investment on New South Wales fishing? So how, how is that going to affect us? What are we looking at? Well, quite simply, it means they're going to allow foreign investment to get in and take hold of our resource. Now, the fish in the water belong to the people of New South Wales. These fish are not for sale to the highest bidder by this government. Mm. How was the, I mean, since I guess how Farrell's taken over, again, we're talking about obviously difference between state and federal. Has Baird shown to be any different than, say, O'Farrell, in your opinion? What do you think? What's the, what's the talk generally been since O'Farrell's been given the can for his little, uh, what, $3,000 bottle of uh, Grange? I mean, you couldn't write this stuff. I mean, <laughs> uh, it was I'll, the only premier I know that could turn water into wine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was even speaking to Rob Borzak before. I mean, you can't even write this stuff. I mean, how things change over the space of a couple of weeks. I mean, you've got O'Farrell gone. Then you've got uh, Robin Parker gone, which was who was apparently allegedly on a speed dial to the National Parks Association or they were on her speed dial. So, I mean, you know, we've seen Michael Gallagher, especially in regards to the ammo bill, we've seen a huge change. So what's the talk? Do we have any talk, behind, not to say behind the scenes, but with, you know, do you have a, a communication relationship with the bad government or not at all? Uh, I haven't personally, but I do have my doubts about it because uh, he's a local member for Manly. And then you've got to worry about uh, Stokes being the um, Pitwater member. The Greens and the NPA and the NCC have already targeted them over uh, making marine park uh, sanctuary zones that were opened. That, that Robert Brown and Robert Borzak pushed very hard with the Minister to reopen sanctuary zones to line fishes off Rock and Beach and uh, areas in the marine parks. They're going to really align themselves to Stokes and Baird because uh, Stokes is on the left side. Yeah. So and, and it's a worry that they may re-close these things. There's no proven science to say marine parks work. So tell, I guess for listeners that may not know about marine parks, what, what, what was the purpose of imposing a marine park in the first place? What do you, what's the reason? Can, can fishers hunt in marine parks, sorry, hunt, fish in marine parks currently? Or tell us about, just tell us a little bit about marine parks, okay, about how they mar- work. Marine parks are broken up into different zones. There's, there's um, sanctuary zones where there's no, there's no fishing, no anchoring, um, no spear fishing allowed. And then there's general use zones where you can fish, dive, snorkel, um, spearfish. And then there's areas where you can line fish only or there's methods of fishing 
allowed certain methods of fishing, like you can only use lures, you can't use baits and things like that. Now, marine parks, when they were set up, they were set up to be able to create spillover effect areas where the fish would breed and multiply and spill out areas. The truth of the matter, after the first scientific survey was done, that the marine parks do not promise what they... Oh, sorry, marine parks have not delivered what they were promised to. Yeah. Okay, they are not run, they are not self-sufficient. Did you know when the marine parks were first set up that marine park authority officers wore sidearms? No. They wore oh. sidearms. I made a joke. What, are they fighting with the fish? Or well, what? I made a joke, Jason, I said, been blown away by kingies many a time, but I don't want to get blown <laughs> away by a marine park authority officer. <laughs> what they think, that what the uh, the fishermen, are, what they're somehow Neanderthals, are they? They're just going to... <laughs> what, start shooting from their boat or something? I, I really don't know. There was a few issues there where fisheries inspectors in previous um, times before marine parks had been accosted by, you know, people perpetrating bad acts. I know one fishing officer got hit over the head with a sand anchor by some illegal meshes. Mm-hmm. I didn't know whether they thought that was a threat, but I think, you know, like people policing sanctuary zones and all that to wear sidearms. <laughs> Bit over the top. Bit over the top. Won't won't arm our citizens, but no problem giving the uh, firearms out to fisheries. Eh? I guess what can SFP offer fishermen here in New South Wales when there's already several you know political parties out there that uh, advocate for fishermen. So what can the uh, SFP offer to fishers? Well, SFP have already got two blokes sitting at the table. We've got two blokes in the upper house: Robert Brown and Robert Borzak. Now, Robert Borzak started off his career in fishing as a spearfisher. A lot of people don't know that. Robert and I fished together, and uh, we've had a great session on snapper. Uh, We've had some trout sessions. And Robert Brown had his own charter fishing business many years ago. So those guys have got a good general insight into the fishing industry. Now, not only that, we've got two seats at the table, and in conjunction with the Christian Democrats, with Fred uh, Nile and Paul Green, we've got a great balance in the upper house. Now, unfortunately, O'Farrell started dealing with the Greens, which negated some of the balance we had, you know, a balance of power. With a third person in that upper house, that would negate the Greens. They're, they're a non-entity. We'd, we would hold the balance of power along with Fred. We'd have the major say in it. So anybody that comes along that's not got a seat at the table has got to do some sort of grubby deal behind the strength is with the people sitting at the table. Yeah. always like how the Greens have always said in regards to hunting, and I guess even some fishing, they've always said, isn't it? Oh, grubby deals, this and that. I mean, we've only got to look at the Greens, you know, federally and also here in New South Wales and around the, around, around the country. I mean, they're doing deals all the time. They did a deal for the carbon tax, you know, to get, you know, labour into power a couple of years ago. So it's hilarious that these actually people would actually talk about doing deals, you know? Well, we've, we've proven it. Like, the Greens with their grubby complaints about hunters, they say they're anti-hunting. They're not anti-killing because they're quite happy to have people out there, professional hunters or professional shooters that do pest control shooting, or people putting 1080, which is an indiscriminate poison, which causes massive suffering. Yep. It's, it's unconscionable, the amount of suffering that 1080 poison gives to an animal that digests it. But the Greens want that as their preferred method. Yeah, And they but- still believe that... Helicopter shooting is a humane method. 
Mm. Like, give me a break. <laughs> I know they always say, "What's the difference between a professional and, a, and a, say what, what they continually call an amateur hunter, which is what the professional hunter gets paid?" I mean, you know, there's guys out there that have been hunting for you know thirty, forty years, yet they're being told they're an amateur. Or even you, or even you, Pete, you know, they're telling you you're you're an amateur hunter, you're an amateur, an amateur fisher. I mean. What's the term amateur? I mean, there's plenty of amateur golfers who are getting big money, mate, I can tell you. Right. Let, me, let me put it this way. Rugby union used to be an amateur game, and now they're earning more money because there was no money in rugby union in the early days because it was all tied up with the old school tie brigade. Yeah. But I'll, I'll give you an interesting, an interesting analogy. Take me, okay? I was a very avid fisherman. I loved fishing so much, I went and did it for a living. I went and bought a trap and line licence, I used to do lobster traps in close. I used to hand line all out of a 16-foot Clark with a 60-horsepower uh, uh, Yamaha on the back. And then I built into bigger boats. But I was line fishing. I was using a hand line or a rod and reel to catch jewfish, to catch kingfish, to catch um, uh, trag, trevally, whatever was in season. But I went and bought a licence, and that made me a professional fisherman. But I'm still using the methods that I was doing as an amateur. <laughs> now, I reload my own ammunition for my rifles. I go to the rifle range and I make sure they're deadly accurate. Just last weekend, we got 32 foxes. But I'm still an amateur. Well, apparently, yeah, according to the Greens. Yeah. The, fu- <laughs> the funniest <laughs> thing I always say, and people don't sort of really understand, but I say, well, let's talk about hunters, even just our licenses, even just private hunters, how many feral animals they've removed you know, from public land or even private land, say, over the last five to six years. And always say, the RSPCA ever have moved a big, fat zero. The Greens, big, fat zero. National Parks Association, big, fat zero. You know, And they've got the hide to tell us that our methods uh, don't work. I mean, <laughs> I do have to laugh at people that say this sort of thing, when they, but they always say, oh, but we just, like the RSPCA, we just advocate, you know, uh, and we, you know, we, we try and talk with the government. But... It's not really achieving any results at all, period. It's all about getting funding for these NGOs. Yeah. They want a seat at the table. Now, interesting you mentioned, you know, amateur hunters, are licensed hunters, removing wild uh, pest animals out of the situation, out of the environment. How many people out there really need to create the havens for these feral species? Mm. They lock it up, they leave it, they don't manage it, and... You've got huge weed problems. You have huge feral animal problems. And who's out there protecting the natives? The poor old conservation hunter who donates his time, spends money in the economy to go out there and rid the environment of these invasive species. Mm. So I think they speak with forked tongue. Exactly. And me and Pete were talking about on the show, uh, or just recently actually, before the show actually, about um, DPI taking over the duck hunting for... Uh, mitigation purposes mm-hmm. uh, from the MPWS. And part of the, if you didn't know, part of the MPWS license, uh, when you actually signed the paperwork every year, was that you weren't going to use uh, decoys, decoys and, and calls. And we're glad now that actually, I think the SFP was part of this in changing that. Now, obviously, the DPI this year are going to be uh, looking after the mitigation uh, duck hunting or bird hunting program, mitigation program, I should say. And uh, now, which is which makes common sense, if you've got, say, ducks 100 metres away on the rice, because, you know, rice bays are fairly large, uh, what's the difference 
in being able to shoot them, say, without decoys, and actually bringing them in from those other bays or swe- you know, sweeping around the air from other bays over to your decoys so you can actually either dispatch them or, you know, it's just it's a great idea. It's good the DPI are able to sort of now allow. Well, that. it's proven that if you can bring the ducks closer into range, it's going to be a more humane dispatch because the odds of a fatal shot is increased. Absolutely. So now we'll be able to, it's great news, for, you know, that's all for uh, the shooters out there here in New South Wales or people that come down from Queensland or Victoria. You know, you're gonna, if you go on the website, the DPI website, uh, you can actually look on the website what you can hunt, go on the Ducks page, look at the Hunter fact sheet and you'll be able to see it there in plain black and white or you can ring them up, the DPI, and ask them about that. But it's going to be a great year this year in 2014. But Pete, let's say, tell us about fish shows. What are some of their issues, uh, grievances they're experiencing? You know, I guess around Australia it would be pretty similar, but what about here in New South Wales? What are some of the issues they're coming up against? One of the most common grievances I get when I speak to anglers is they're very critical that they never see fisheries inspectors. I mean, they have cut numbers down, uh, from certainly from the years when I was a commercial fisherman. I mean, there's three officers that patrol the Sydney Basin area, and they basically go up the coast to Barrenjoey, along the Hawkesbury River, out to Wiseman's Ferry, around through the mountains, down to Wallachia, and down George's River, and back up the Parramatta Riverway. Three officers. Now, there's a lot of commercial fishing activity goes in there. There's a lot of illegal meshing activity takes place. There's a lot of recreational anglers out there that are doing the wrong thing. But, unfortunately... There's not enough officers to get out there. Now, it's like having the highway patrol on the highways. If you see them parked up on the side of the road and a visual presence, people start to behave themselves. If people are out there seeing people in uniforms that say, I can do this, I can I can chip you, I can issue a fine, I can make sure you're doing the right thing, people start to take notice. And... Certainly up on the mid-north coast and the far north coast of New South Wales where there's an absolute scarcity of inspectors, there's people out there supplementing their uh, unemployment benefits by breaking the bag limit and selling their catch, what we call share farming as a common term. (laughs) And that is the biggest grievance we get is people seeing people doing the wrong thing, undersized fish or taking more than they can. That's one of the most common grievances. Now, the other one is value for money for their fishing licence fee. Sorry, it's not a license. It's called a fishing fee receipt. Okay, it's a terminology because or whatever they say it's a fishing fee receipt. Now, people don't understand that the money's raised from the fishing licenses that you pay for in New South Wales, and you only have to pay for a license from when you uh, turn eighteen through when do you. Uh, retire. If you're on the pension, disabled or aged pension, or you're a minor or you're Indigenous, you don't need a licence. Okay. Now, all that money was fought heart and soul to make sure that it went into a recreational fisheries trust fund. If it went into state revenue, into the coffers of the government, didn't want it. It was there to fund recreational fishing. Now, some of the things that have gone really well, some of the things haven't due to this rec fund. And one of the things that really irks me is the recreational fishing licence paid to sink wrecks up and down the coast, artificial reefs, such as the uh, wreck up off of Voca. Okay. We're not allowed to fish that, but our fees went towards it. The divers got that as a diving habitat. Now, you've got an artificial reef off Vaucluse, 
made out of steel. Recreational fees paid for that. Good thing. But the problem is diving schools and, and dive industry didn't pay for it. And I get really annoyed when I go to anchor there or drift over it and jig for kings that there's a dive flag there and I can't get near the wreck, near the artificial reef. So our money has been spent wisely in areas such as uh, artificial reefs that they're going to put up and down the coast. Uh, they've put fishing platforms in, disabled access for people to fish. There's a beautiful one there on the north bank of the uh, Maruya River at Pretty's Wharf. There's um, a great one that they've built in Cowan. But people really don't see where the money's being spent. That's one of the other grievances I've got. Absolutely. Any more you got in your little list there? I know you should look in there. Oh, the bag. <laughs> the last uh, saltwater size and bag limit review, which was... I know the Jewish changed because I've been looking at getting a Jew for so long and still can't get oh, one. Oh, you'll have to come out in the boat with me. <laughs> one of my most meritorious captures was a big Jew off the rocks. But, um, look, I've worked long and hard representing fishermen and I've never seen such a huge disjustice misjustice, I should say, to anglers than what I've just seen in this current recreational bag limit review. Their opening statement says less than 1% of fishing trips result in a bag limit catch. That's of all the bag limits, whether it be 5 trag, 10 dusky flatted, 20 brim, or 5 kingfish. Okay, less than 1% of fishing trips. Well, that says to me, it's working. The people that are out there fishing, now they quote, there's 750 licence holders in New South Wales, but there's probably closer to 1.8 million people that fish because when you take away the people that don't have a licence because they're uh, Indigenous or they're underage or they're on a pension. Sorry, did you mean 750,000? 750,000, sorry. sorry. sorry no, I just want to make sure I'm thinking 750. That's not that, man. Yes. Surely there's more than that. <laughs> 750,000 licensed yep. people. Yeah. Now, less than 1% of fishing trips result in a bag limit catch. Now, I know at certain times of the year I can go out and, like, five kings will get that. Andrew Hesterlay from the downrigger shop yep. get his five. Whether he wants to keep five or not, that's a different story. But what you've got to realise, not everybody's got the advantage of living close to the coast. And whilst I might go out and get 10 brim today and a couple of days later you might want to come and we'll say, Jace, we'll go get a few fish, I might only keep two for a feed out of the trip I've got two days later. Look at the person that comes from Baraba or Weewall, comes across to the coast to Woolai, to Yamba, to uh, Wulgulga. When they're there, they come at mackerel season, they're allowed five mackerel a day, whether it be Spanish or Spotties. They're allowed a combined bag limit of five. They want to drop that down to two. And then they can't catch another mackerel until they've taken one out of the equation. So they've got to sit down and eat one tonight before they can catch yeah. another one tomorrow because of the possession limit. Yeah. These people come over to the coast for two weeks a year, once in the snapper season, once in the uh, Spanish mackerel season, and those people are effectively taking home their year's supply or a six-month's supply of fresh fish to put in their freezer to feed them out in the bush. They don't get the options to go out there. What do they get? If they get a chance to go to a supermarket, They'll get frozen bassa fillets, which grows out of a sewer in Vietnam, <laughs> or they'll get venomai prawns. <laughs> so we've got to look at everybody in the equation, not just the people that think they're out there catching a lot of fish day in, day out that live near the coast. We've got to think about our country cousins as well. Good stuff. I know there was a lot of – we just spoke about uh, fishing licences. 
This is a very interesting. Mario is my co-host, so he wanted to ask you this question. He asked if uh, the SFP is either going to abolish the fishing license or he actually he calls it a tax. He thinks it's a tax. Does SFP agree with that or you think in general? What do you think of the license fee just in general? I know we spoke, you spoke about some positives and the negatives, but what about the people that are out there yeah, that may not, as we, and we spoke about this before the show, there's affluent people out there that can afford to you know, go buy salmon three, two, three nights a week. There's people out there that can afford their prawns every week. But there's people out there that don't have maybe great jobs, uh, even the unemployed, for an example. Um, what are they going to do? Isn't it their inherent right to be able to hunt and fish uh, without having to have a, a $60 license for, me to, for them to tell me I can actually legally go out there and fish? That's that's a very very difficult question to answer with a lot of succinctness in there. To me, under the guise it was introduced as a fishing license means that we are paying to access a resource, so we should have a say in how that resource is managed. Yeah. Okay. Under that premise, I'm I'm happy to see it uh, in place. If we took it away, we would then lose out on things like funding the artificial reefs funding the restocking programs. Um, take into account Gadden Hatchery down at Jindabyne. Gadden Hatchery is responsible for most of the fingerlings that are released in the Snowy Mountains and southern New South Wales region. That was going to close, okay? Shooters and Fishers Party negotiated with the government to use the Recreational Trust Fund to fund the uh, ongoing operation. And that would not have happened if there was no fishing fee. Because we said, we're users, we're paying to access this. We will still want to keep stock in the mountains with trout. So therefore, they utilise some of the trust fund money to do it. I mean, the artificial reefs program that we've got, it's funding that. That can only be a good thing for recreational anglers. They've got to start putting some in estuaries so shore-based anglers can benefit from it. If we took away the licence, we would lose a lot of things that we've done. Yeah, if it's used wrongly, it is a tax. Mario's dead right, it's a tax. But we have no plans to abolish a fishing licence. We've actually got plans to use the licence fees to create an independent body similar to what the Game Council was that manages recreational fishing. Hmm. And that would be a worthwhile thing to have a licence funding. I guess because we had a chat about this a bit earlier on, just about... You know that I, you know, if I don't have a license, well then legally, technically, I can't fish. But we're talking about people that just want to, you know, go out there. You know, maybe they're not even interested in hunting or shooting or fishing. All they want to do is go out there because people there's one there's only a couple of things you got to do in this life. It's uh, eat, it's sleep, and hopefully procreate and bring more people into the world. So if you, it just doesn't make sense to me that sometimes they you know, yeah the license money might go to good things, but also leaves it open to a lot of abuse from the government, as you said, spending it on things maybe they necessarily shouldn't be spending it on, or giving out grants for some of these bogus uh, well, non NGOs you know out there. This is it. The money's gone into recreational trust uh, fund. Now there's people on expenditure committees that allow that money to be spent. Now, some of these people on these committees are so-called people that say they're representing recreational angler. Well, how can they represent a recreational angler when they give it to a project that we're not allowed to fish on? Yeah. Okay? This, this is where See, it really stupid. irks me. That's stupid. It really irks me when self-interest people get involved. Okay? Now, you, you're going to touch on, you know, whether people can afford it or not. That is a very difficult question. But the option is there that 
you can pay for you know a day license, you can pay for a yearly license, or you can pay for a three yearly license. Now, paying seventy five dollars a year for three years is is well going to be out of reach to some people. One hundred thirty five dollars is going to be out of reach. Sorry, yeah. uh, uh, two hundred and fifteen, two hundred two hundred twenty five dollars. <laughs> it's going to be out of reach to people for three years. But those people that want to go fishing a couple of times a year can pay their five dollar a day or seven dollars a day. It went up to sorry yeah. um, to access the fishery. Um, if they're on a disability allowance or if they're on an age pension, what well, they don't have to pay it either. They've just got to produce their pension and they're they're fine. Now, if you're an adult and you're instructing a child in fishing, you don't need a license. No. Okay, provided you are not actively fishing. But if you're assisting the child with the casting, with the baiting of the hook and helping him land the fish, and that's okay. But if you're actually holding the rod and he's holding the rod himself, you're doomed to be fishing. So you've broken the law there. See, we talk about hunting you know, and fishing, but you talk about these licenses. I mean, we've got to have a, a DPI license to hunt. Now, fishing license, again, this is out of the reach for some people. It really is. I mean, I, I hear about that all the time. It's just out of reach. I mean, look at, you know, what a five-year license for the DPI is, what, $250, $300. Uh, your, your fishing license as well a year. I mean, that's quite a lot of money, I mean, to go out there and, which, as you said, people get 1% uh, a bag out. 1% will get a bag out when going fishing. I mean, I've been out a lot of times and got absolutely nothing. Sometimes I've got two or three flathead up at, uh, you know, Barrowry, et cetera. But, you know, it's just and people are spending a lot of money, fuel, Nothing's getting cheaper. It generates a lot of income for a lot of businesses fishing. And there was talk about putting a tax on fishing gear that it, rather than pay a licence. But they said it was too hard to work to break down in their sales tax of how to uh, put it into government coffers. Because that way, the person that spent more on fishing tackle paid more. And the person that was earning less and didn't pay as much, didn't, didn't pay as much tax, you know. Yeah. And... It, there are good sides to it and bad sides of it. You'd have to get into budget subcommittees and, and work out how that would work. But I wouldn't like to see the licence removed because it's funding these things that do benefit recreational mm. anglers. What we need moment. to do is get people in there that know how to manage the thing and make sure the money's going to the correct things and not these stupid things where you go into this but you can't fish there. Reprehensible. That's right. Correct management is the key to everything. Like our fisheries management, like the actual... Management of the fisheries is not too bad, but it's the administration of the fisheries that is the problem. Yeah. Okay. That is the, that's the, the paramount importance is to make sure that the administration of that fisheries management is done well. Yep. Mate, if you won a seat in Parliament, say, give us, say, your top three to five things you'd be wanting to change or put forward, say, immediately, you know, in your first year or your first tenure if you got into the upper house of parliament of New South Wales. Well, give me, just give me three to five, say, of your most important areas. Okay, well, not in any order, okay? Not in any particular order, but I'd love to see a recreational fishing body set up. Um, let New South Wales Fisheries administer to the commercial fishery and let their management and, and fund the research into that. But let anglers run fishing. Recreational fishing, as we know, less than 1%. Of fishing trips result in a bag limit catch. So we all know how successful the Game Council was as an authoritative body and it put other government departments that run by bureaucrats to shame on how effective it was for the money invested. We'd like to see, and it's Robert Brown's pipe dream, to see that set up. I'd really, really love to see that. That'd be a big goal for me to kick 
Uh, another thing I'd like to do, just across the road here, uh, you mentioned it earlier, Prospect Reservoir. We have an unlimited potential stocked with native fish in there. There's catfish, there's silver perch in there. We could use that as a great training ground to get kids fishing. They talk about kids are getting a boost. They're playing video games. They're, they're, they're not being active in sports. It's a wonderful facility. We could have these kids fishing clinics and we could get them out there catching these fish that have been there for years. We don't use Prospect Reservoir for the intent that it was originally used for the water board. Mm. Okay? It's no longer supplying the water. It's, it's, it's more like a runoff area. And every now and then they bring it on tap. I've heard there's some good species in there too. I think Andrew Hesterlow was on my show before said, you know, just some great fish in there. There's some, some great fishing. Fish and the guys have got to get perch. yeah, they got to get down in there and the, some of the divers have seen some damn big fish some in there. Some big cod in there, they tell me. <laughs> what what are some other aspects you'd also look at uh any other things marine you do? parks. They're talking about doing a review on the marine estate at the moment, okay? That's currently out there. Marine parks were not providing what they said they would when they set them up, I'd like a solid review done and peer-reviewed to show what a bogus setup they are. Look, Jason, I'd go as far as say I'd like to abolish marine parks. Yeah. I'd really like to abolish them. Get rid of them. Okay. Because the audacity of the Greens, they sit there and say, oh, but a marine park, it'll have sanctuary zones and the fish will be there and they'll have a spillover effect and those fish will migrate out of those areas to other areas and populate other areas. Then, just two days ago on the ABC, they were bagging the artificial reefs that they've announced were going to be installed. Okay. They don't even realise that those artificial reefs will become breeding grounds for fish and then they will cause a spillover effect. So they negate their own science in this. Yeah. So in that case, throw them out. Yeah. It was actually quite interesting. Me and another friend were having a conversation. This might be something you can tackle too. What's the effect and roll-on? We've seen a lot of sharks uh, coming into shore now. I remember back, you probably remember this back, I'm sure, in the 80s. There was, I remember there was a lot of netting. My old man used to take me down to uh, Balmoral. I don't even know if it still is netted down there. And people used to be able to swim generally, you know, uh, on weekends without a fear of being attacked by a shark. And people say, oh, if you're in their territory, but I don't believe the water is the sole domain of a shark. And that's the only thing that rules the ocean. And we, we're going into its territory. We've got fish, we've got other types of marine species. I guess uh, my question is, how do these marine parks and the spilling of extra fish, extra bait fish, of course, we're going to get more sharks. It seems like common sense to me. How do we sort of manage manage that? I mean, we obviously get people coming from different countries, overseas. They want to be able to go in the water relatively safely. I guess we can never guarantee that, but they want to be able to go in the water. What's the effect on sharks, say, to extra bait fish in the water and extra fish in the water? Um, well, let's look at it. I grew up on the banks of the Parramatta River down at Ermington. Yeah. Okay. I can remember as a kid watching bull sharks and hammerheads in the river, and especially this time of year, April, May. Mm, Spawning. Getting ready for the mullet run. Mm. All right. And I've seen dogs taken, people throwing sticks out there for the dogs to swim over, little yelp and a boil, and poor old old D for the dog doesn't come back. (laughs) Now, there has always been bull sharks in the river. Uh, the last fatal attack was uh, a lady taken up in uh, Powder Hulk Bay there at Northbridge. And I used to have my boat moored there at Tunks Park, which is not far. 
and that would have been a bull shark. She dived off a rock into the water and basically dived straight into the shark's mouth. The amount of fishing we're seeing, uh, a lot more shark interaction is because more people are out there, more people have got mobile phone cameras, they've got GoPros, and they, they're filming it. Go back 20 years, not everybody had a camera in the boat. Everybody's got a mobile phone with a camera, so they're starting to see a bit more uh, uh, research about it. The incidents that have happened have always uh, been there around migratory species um, when they're starting to move down the harbour. That's when a lot of these attacks take, or they, uh, when people are taken off beaches, they're not normally taken in the middle of the day, they're taken at the, the, the risk periods, dusk and dawn, or after rain, when there's a bit of dirty water. Well, they can't see people, they can't make out Sharks noise. consensus very, very well. Bite first, ask questions later. Well, you've got no hands to go and touch them with. <laughs> I guess my point was, back in the 80s, you know, they did have some, a lot of, and people would be able to swim, generally, you know, uninhibited, because they had a net, and, and the Greens say, well, you know, because a few dolphins actually died you know, in those nets, I guess we might not know how effective those nets were well, because sharks came in, may have hit the net, got it on their nose, didn't really like it, eh, and they just turned around and swam off. We've still got those mesh nets, but Newcastle, Sydney and Wollongong that we've had since the hysteria days of the 50s and 60s. Those nets are still there and they still have a baited line every so often. Mm. I mean, when I was commercially fishing, I used to run wobby lines in DY Bay and that's in the area from um, around what they call No Man's Land in Longreef, yeah, opposite the lagoon. Yep. And that was a six-hooker, and you know, I'd be chasing wobbies. Uh, and uh, quite often I'd get some big tigers. Yeah? Yeah, well, it's called Shark Alley, that oh, area yeah. with the bombies there. That's one place I'd, when I used to surf, I used to try and avoid. I've um, seen some <laughs> big critters in there. Yeah. Mate, tell us about what changes to the fishing rules uh, would you like to see in your opinion? So let's talk about, I mean, anything in particular in regards to size limits, bag limits, just general day-to-day stuff fish shows are dealing with. Uh, I'd leave them where they are now. Okay, unless someone can come up to me with some solid concrete evidence and say we are damaging the fish stocks. Recreational fishermen do take a lot of fish over the year. Absolutely, without a question. There's 750,000 of us with a licence, but we are not taking bag limit catches. My only worry was that they've asked for these restrictions and further bag limits because policing issues. Greens are whinging that we're taking too much fish, whilst the figures show we don't. So why go and affect law-abiding anglers that do the right thing down to two trag, for instance, from five to two, because some numb nut up in the far north coast of New South Wales or the mid-north coast goes out and gets his five today, and then he'll go out this afternoon and get another five, then he'll go out tomorrow morning and get another five, and then he'll get another five in the afternoon and sell them to supplement his dole money. Why should we be affected because of that? It's a policing issue. Put more inspectors on it. That's what our trust fund was there. I'd leave the bag limits as they are. I'd certainly like to inst- in- instrument this recreational fishing body. Yeah. I've got a good one for you. This actually affected me. Went down to Malakuda. You probably know it's in Victoria. Yeah, yeah. Big flathead country. Yeah, yep. love it down there. My mate's got a holiday house down there. Now, when we were down there in New South Wales, I'm pretty sure in Victoria, we were trying to get potty mullets. Very difficult to get because they wouldn't go into my little trap. Now, why did they ban the hand nets? Because... Yeah, they're people cast out. Cast net? Cast net, sorry. Why did, why did they ban cast nets? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're still legal in Queensland. I'm Absolutely. pretty sure. You can, buy, you can buy them already in BCF and places like that in New South Wales. 
but you can't use them in your South Wales. What doesn't make sense to me is, was it because people were abusing the system? If I want to go out and get a couple of potties for Flathead, they were around, they were around my trap just sitting there. They just wouldn't go in my they trap. They won't go I, in. Yeah, all yeah. I was thinking was, great, I can just throw this over them. I'll get you know, whatever the, the limit is, or you know, 20 or 30, and then I'll be on my way and ready to go, and I'll be fishing within an hour. Instead, I've got to sit there, minuscule, trying to get into a trap, Again, why are we giving? This almost reminds me of firearms. Why are we punishing people for the acts of people that want to throw in, pick up two, three hundred, and then? But, but people aren't really doing that. That's that's the thing. You get the odd idiot does the wrong thing. We change the laws, and the good people suffer. Well, cast nets are a very common way of catching your bait, and also catching uh, banana prawns up in Queensland in the estuaries in Queensland. People see the prawn schools on the surface, and they throw. A cast net. And this is why I think this minister is detached from her portfolio because she's got people with a green agenda working inside fisheries that don't want us to have those, uh, those uh, devices. Now, one of the classic things is the only legal method of taking a fin fish in New South Wales is by use of a line or using a spear, okay? So like a spear gun underwater or... Um, using a line, whether it be a lure or a fly or a baited hook. You can't grab a fish by hand. You can't net a fish by hand. And the cast net actually breaks that uh, declaration in fisheries management that you're taking fish by um, net. Now, potty mullet traps are legal, so therefore you are taking fish by another means of hook. So why aren't we allowed to use a net? It's the same as you're not allowed to catch a squid in the Sydney uh, Harbour Aquatic Reserve. Mm. Like, it's... The wording of the act was fin fish. You can take crustaceans, okay, but you can't take you can take fin fish, but you can't take a squid. Mm. Now I met with the minister in December, and said, "Yeah, yeah, I'll have a discussion paper out, blah blah blah. We'll do a legal size on the squid, and nothing's happened. Five and a half months down the track, nothing's happened. Yeah. So these are things we want to change. Yeah, changes the Fisheries Act, and. What what can I say? We're out of touch with what happens in the industry. It just annoys me. I see them sitting there. They're around my bloody trap. They're there. They just won't go in my trap. What's what stopped me from just easy method of getting a cast net, getting twenty or thirty? People say, but oh, but people might take a lot more. But if they police it, then <laughs> police it. People are going to take a lot more flathead than they're allowed to take. People are going to take brim more than allowed. You've got people taking more trag and mackerel than what they're allowed to do. So why throw that premise that you might go and take more because you're using the cast net? You're only taking them for bait, for goodness sake. I oh, know, but the, the, the other part of that too is if I'm going to use a cast net and it was illegal, I'm going to use a cast net anyway if, not, if, if I'm going to break the law. You know what I mean? That's so, right. How does this oh, – this, again, this one thing you might be able to put for our fish shows, if you get up, you might be able to you know, put that forward. I'd so like we can, to. So I'd we, like to. So we can actually use a cast net to make it easier for us to get bait fish instead of using those bloody milk bottles and all that to you – know, and the fish anyway. Interesting stuff. But, mate, why is there – let's talk about the next question. Why is there a segregation – say, in the fishing community. This is also the you know, hunting and shooting community as well, but we have millions of fishermen. Uh, the, the vote count for the Shooters and Fishers parties that changed the name may not have been as good as what we'd hoped. Uh, how can we change that, and how can we reflect uh, new votes for the 2015 election uh, for fish shows and get them voting for the Shooters and Fishers party? Look, I think that there's a lot of anglers that, out there that don't really understand how hard Shooters and Fishers party have been working to represent them i think maybe they seem just more akin to a shooter's party and they haven't put any runs on the board for anglers where in fact we have we've worked really hard as a party to have some major wins now to keep the uh, gadden hatchery open was a major major 
um, win for anglers in New South Wales, particularly the trout anglers that go down there, because that's where a lot of the progeny come from, stocking the lakes. Uh, we fought Oilies Wharf down in Port Kembla. Those people that live in the uh, regional areas will notice that we've had minor winds in areas. Oilies was a very popular public access wharf for fishing. And when the port privatisation project came in, the owners wanted to ban the access. Shooters and Fishers Party won the rights for that, to anglers to go, keep fishing there. Uh, the other classic was um, down in the Murray River, a developer was dredging the river and pulling snags out to make nice clear beaches for water skiers and everything to pull up and pull all the houseboats out. But what he was actually doing was destroying Murray Cod habitat. Through hard work of the Shooters and Fishers Party, that uh, person eventually got prosecuted and had to, at his own expense, put the snags back in the river and pay huge substantial costs. Now, um, Maru Lake down on the south coast, a recreational fishing haven, we've just told him, hands off, that's ours. That's for the people in New South Wales. And uh, we've uh, Port Botany, that fight's still going on. We've saved Molyneux Point for uh, recreational fishermen under this port reclamation area. So I think now the mainstream angler is going to see that there are some runs on the board and that the uh, support will come. Uh, look, people used to say oh, they don't like guns. I, I don't think that was the reason at all. I just think they didn't really get to know us. Now that we're a bit more mainstream, this campaign going to 2015 is going to be an elevator campaign and people will see what we've actually done and will join. If we'll build it, they'll come. Absolutely, mate. Let's finish off. We've got two more questions, but we'll finish off with a story. Uh, tell the listeners it can be anything, you know, from a hunting story to a fishing story, anything that uh, sticks out in Pete Johnson's mind as one of the, sort of the, you know, the best day in his life, something that really sticks out in your mind. Oh, there's, there's so many great days I've had out on the water, and I'll give you, I'll give you an instance. Uh, I was up with some friends fishing in the Hadhead area, and we're actually down on an area called Connors Beach, uh, fishing off the uh, the uh, northern headland there, and it's a very boulder-strewn area, a lot of white water. You get some really good tailor in there. Anyway, uh, the big tailor were there, so I decided to uh, go fish for days with seagar fish, and because of that, I built up some gang hooks, seven gang, uh, seven A-size gangs, and I hooked into a really good tailor, and he was probably I saw him, he's probably about three or four kilo, and uh, he was good fish, and I. I Probably had him 20 yards out, and he got seized by a good Jew. So there I am fishing on 30-pound line for these big tailor, and it was a fair bit of bump. Anyway, when I saw the Jew behind him, I see I knew what he was going to do, and I said to myself, if he hits it, let him have it. So he hit my tailor, and he turned and he took off, and I let him run with it, and I could feel him bumping it, and then I struck. Because I knew with seven A's, there was a good chance with four of them, I was going to pin him in the gob, and I did. And after a 40-minute struggle, we gaffed him and bought him out, and he went 28 kilo. Jeez. And that was a lovely fish, and uh, that was probably the best day's rock fishing I've ever had for a freak capture that I'd have been happy with the big tailor. But then when the Jew did it, I said I'd let him have it because it's probably about the 10th time in my fishing career I've had Jews come up and grab a tailor. I'm still hoping for the one. <laughs> and then I think the other fishing highlight I got was when I got my f wife her first uh, barramundi. That was, uh, it was just short of the metre. It was 97 centimetres. Uh, we'd been up there at Lake Awunga and she was, she was knackered. She, she couldn't blow out a candle at the end of it. 
but she done really well. And uh, to see her, and I'll sh- I think you've seen that photo, Jason, on the Facebook page, my wife of a barra. Magnificent day. I didn't catch the fish, my wife did, <laughs> and that's a memory got. And then um, I think hunting-wise, my my best achievement was last March when I shot that uh, that chittle deer stag that I got. It was, a, it was a memorable hunt. It was six hours involved in that from the time we first spotted him to the time we got back to camp with him. There was like a two-and-a-half two to three-hour stalk. Nice. Sounds like you had a lot of fun there, mate. I guess if people want to help or donate to the Shooters and Fishers Party, you know, they want to uh, volunteer next year or throughout this year, even up until the next 2015 election. I mean, how can they go about it? Where can they go? Who they can talk to? What can they do? Look, the best thing to do would be go to our website, which is www.sfp2015.org.au. There's several options there. Best thing to do is to press the volunteer button and all the information for the campaign will be circulated to you. Then come time for voting time on the 28th of March, you'll be contacted, you'll be asked, where would you like to help out? Do you want to come and act as an intern in the bunker up here at Castle Hill? Or do you want to go and um, be a crew captain and or a regional captain and make sure the polling booths of staff or do you want to be um, inventory and make sure that all the how the vote cards get to the right people? Or as simple as sitting on a booth for four hours on polling day. That's the best way to do it. Go to the website, which is, again, www.sfp2015.org.au. Or you can contact me at pjohnson, that's P-J-O-H-N-S-O-N, at sfp.org.au. Just drop me an email and we can get back in touch with you. That's right, and the SFP are going to be doing a few things over the next year, aren't they? A lot of meetups and greets. And- well, yeah, we've got Hunt Fest down at uh, Narooma on the uh, June long weekend, so uh, we'll, we'll be there. Um, I'll be there in dual capacity, well, a try capacity actually. Now we're having a fisherman's meeting at the bowling club on a Saturday, but Nepean Hunters, which is the club which I'm president of, that's going to have their uh, stand down there to support Hunt Fest. We're going to be there in the Shooters and Fishers Party vibes and also this fishing meeting. What about um, Shooters and Fishers Shot Show? Are they going to be at the Shot Show this year? They are going to be at the Shot Show. Yep. Uh, we're going to be at the Evans Head Fishing Classic on the first week in July. Yep. Uh, we'll have Team SFP up there, christening Robert Borzak's new boat. Oh, nice. That saves me towing mine up. It's good. <laughs> the benefits of being a parliamentarian. Ah, uh, Well, he did own that company, Brooker Boats. Yeah. Robert was a part owner of Brooker Boats wow. until he sold it recently. Wow. I've learned a lot of new stuff every day. So I guess all right, any other anything else you wanted to finish off before we finish off anything to mention? Well, one thing I'd like to do, and it's starting to get there, but I'd also like to raise a bit more of, of the hunting profile in mainstream media. I mean, with the High Tide program on the 2SM Super Radio Network, we're starting to talk a bit of hunting now. And uh, there's a lot of people that, um, I guess you'd say, uh, a dual outdoors people. They're hunters and fishers, like, there's a very known charter operator in Botany Bay, Scotty Lawrence, is quite an avid bow hunter as well. And uh, Laurie McAnally, who's chairman of the uh, South West Rocks Fishing Co-op and, a, and, a, and an eel and crab fisherman, he, he, he doesn't mind getting a shot away for rabbits every now and then as well. I know, love it. I just, who doesn't love it? I oh, love the fishing, love the shooting. You can't really go right. I always say, who wouldn't be interested in this? Who wouldn't want to be a hunter and shooter in 2014, you know? Let me ask you a question. Go on. I've just been out with my nephew and my great-nephew, okay? It's three generations of us out hunting last weekend, knocking foxes over. 
my nephew, he he raved about the time I took him hunting at this property. He got his first pig. So he said, well, we're coming back. So he bought his son. Now, he just talked about the whole weekend, still talking to me, FaceTimes me, Uncle Pete, Uncle Pete, Uncle Pete. Ask a kid, do you remember your best day's television? No, never. Do you remember your best day's fishing oh, or hunting? One in, always, always. You know, I started a bit late than some people. Uh, my parents never hunted, so uh, but my brother's gotten into it now. Oh, loves hunting, loves shooting now. Probably about the last year he got into it too because of, of me and said, oh, this sounds a bit great. Now he's getting his pistol license. Just had to go organise a shotgun for him down at Horsley Park. Um, yeah, he loves it too. Got him into it, got a few friends into it too, So, but they love it. You look at it, you get it out in an environment, you're getting sunshine, you're getting clean mountain air, or if you're out in the ocean, you get good salty air. It's a great place to be. It beats being stuck in some little room watching an uh, uh, Xbox or a PS3. Mm. I mean, you can't eat the fish you get on a PS3. No. I mean, I they're really... buying fishing games on PS3s I and, know. and Xboxes these days. Or... And whilst they're fun, they don't stick in my mind as a memorable day. No. But I tell you mm. what, the day I got that big dewy up there at Connors Beach, it had head. That stuck in my mind. My yeah. chittle stag, that stuck in my mind. And exactly. uh, the afternoon where we knocked 180 ducks over the rice, that sits in my day. Oh, I've had some good. I can't wait till the season starts again. Love it. Love it. You and I will have to be partners down here, I think, mate. I can see a few duck trips coming up. Exactly. And as, as we said before, you can now hunt uh, us on the rice uh, with decoys, calls, and your dogs to retrieve. So it's excellent. So I guess we want to thank Pete for coming on the show to, to uh, chat with us and share about what he's going to be doing up until the uh, 2015 election to get that third seat uh, in Parliament. It's going to be a good time. As I said, if you can help out, go to that uh, sfp2015.org.au website, click that volunteer button, uh, get out there, get to the meet and greet days. If you want to help out, they've got the bunker. I'm not sure if people knew what the bunker was, but that's the uh, SFP sort of head office up there at Castle Hill in uh, New South Wales. So if you're around there, jump on the website. You can come and help. We need people manning the booze, don't we, Pete? So get out there and make a difference. So thanks for coming on the show, Pete, and hopefully we uh, get another third person because I think if we get another third person, uh, it's going to really push up you know, that, that, that vote and it's really going to help us out in trying to get some changes you know, here in New South Wales. We've already seen Rick Mazur in WA. Uh, we weren't far off a second seat in WA. So if we can get some more around Australia, we really are going to become a formidable uh, opponent and, and, and good for shooters and uh, fishers here in uh, New South Wales and around the country. Thanks again, Pete. Thanks very much for the opportunity, Jason, and keep up with a quality show. Thanks very much. You've just been educated, and this is the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.